appreciate the prayers and ask you to continue to pray. Uh, definitely need the Lord's blessing and grace and guidance. If I'm going to say anything, it's a benefit to you. But also uh, encourage you to pray for yourselves too. Uh, because you, know, you also need God's grace to hear something worth hearing, no matter what I have to say. Uh, it's uh, a great pleasure to be here. It's uh, kind of exciting for me to be here, actually, uh, partly uh, because of my connections with this church. Now, that I can remember, I've only been here one other time, and that was not for a worship service. Uh, but uh, as Brother Chris indicated, uh, the Green family and the Fulmer family go way back. So I've been aware of this church and kind of been aware of uh, what's been going on with it for a great many years. And, uh, and it feels like a church that I'm very familiar with, even though I haven't uh, visited here uh, a lot. Uh, but I'm glad to be here, thankful to be here for that reason, but even more than that, I'm just always glad to be where God's people are gathered to worship. That's an exciting thing and an exciting time for me. Uh, maybe to a degree that a lot of people wouldn't understand that, and there was a time when I probably wouldn't have understood it. Uh, but uh, it's, it's that way in my life now that uh, I just I look forward to gathering for the time of worship of our great and wonderful God. Um, I've had a lot of different thoughts this week, and it seems like one has sort of led to another, and then when I tried to trail it back, I couldn't really figure out how I got from point A to point B and how they work together. Uh, but maybe things are kind of congealing a little bit and, and uh, will come together in such a way that will be uh, a benefit to you and honoring to God. But I want to start out in the third chapter of Exodus. I had a verse in that passage chapter that just really jumped out at me this week. I don't know if you have that experience where sometimes you're reading a passage of Scripture uh, and it just really grabs you in a way that it's never grabbed you before. Maybe you see something in it you hadn't seen before or it just hits you with a power and a reality that had never hit you before. There's a, there's a verse in this passage of Scripture uh, that did that for me this week. And it's the seventh verse of the third chapter of Exodus. This is where Moses uh, is at the end of his uh, second 40 years of life that he has spent as a shepherd. Uh, and it's when he saw the bush on fire that was not burning up. And he went to investigate it and the Lord spoke to him out of that bush. And as they were speaking, the Lord said this. And the Lord said... I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And it just really hit me in a powerful way. God hears our prayers. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. First off, his eye is on us. He knows what's going on with us before we ever cry out to him and have heard their cry. But when we do cry out to them, he hears. He is a God that not only hears but answers prayer. Doesn't always answer them in the time frame that we think they ought to be answered in, 
doesn't even always answer them with the response that we think they ought to be answered with. But he always answers them. And his answer is always the best time. And it's always the best response. And, uh, and I'm so thankful for that, that he does that. But he's, he's a God that cares. Uh, he's paying attention. He's watching after us better than we watch after ourselves. Uh, and he's responding to us and caring for us. Uh, he's a God that cares. Yes, he's, he's a God that many other things are true of him. And sometimes we may be guilty of getting focused in on just one thing, getting kind of tunnel vision of God and sort of trying to paint him into a corner. Uh, maybe we just want to focus on the fact that he's a God of judgment. Uh, focus on the fact that he's a God of righteousness. Uh, and lose sight of the fact that he's a God of love and he's a God of compassion. Uh, we may be even more likely to just want to get focused in on the fact that he is love, that he is a God of love, that he's a God of compassion, and forget that he's also a God that hates sin and that will judge sin. But we've got to look at God as best we can in his entirety and all the things that he is, and he is a God of judgment. He is a God of truth. He's a holy God. In that holiness and in his judgment, he is a loving God. He is a compassionate and merciful God. But I can't address all of those today. And I want to kind of focus in on the fact that he is a caring God. In Jeremiah 29, verse 11, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. That's, uh, if you stop and think about it, a pretty incredible thing right there. God has thoughts towards us. God thinks about us. God dwells upon us. Meditates upon us. I'm sure he does a much better job of that than I do of meditating upon him. And so what a wonderful thing it is that he has thoughts that he thinks towards us. Well, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. I've got thoughts of goodness towards you. I've got thoughts of bringing peace to you. We can have peace in many ways. And God brings us peace in many ways. But the greatest way that he accomplished peace and brought peace to us was when he made peace between us and himself because we had been separated from him. We were dead to him in sin and iniquity. In other words, we were separated. Death is a separation. One of these days, my body's going to get laid in the ground if the Lord doesn't come back first. And my body will, my biological body will cease to function because it became separated from my soul. When Adam sinned, he became separated in his fellowship from God because God cannot dwell with sin, we're told in the fifth psalm. So we were no longer at peace with him. And in fact, we had a very militant attitude towards God until he came and changed us. Uh, we considered him our enemy. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, among other places, points that out to us. 
And that when we still were at enmity with him, he gave himself for us. Uh, we weren't just ambivalent towards God. In our human fallen nature, we considered God our enemy. We were fighting against God. But he brought peace to us. He knows his thoughts that he has towards us. Hopefully we all have thoughts towards God's, and that's a good thing. And he knows our thoughts. The Bible tells us he knows our thoughts. He knows our needs before we ask for them. But it's even more important that he has thoughts towards us. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. And there's a consequence to these thoughts. Look what it says next. Then shall ye call upon me. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord. Because God has thoughts towards us, thoughts of peace and not of evil, thoughts to give us an expected end, we are inspired to pray to him. We are inspired to reach out to him, to search for him from our heart. And when he do, we do that, we will be found of him, he says. Uh, you know, Satan's a, a terribly destructive being. And he's created a lot of confusion in this world. And he's got a lot of people confused thinking that God won't be found of us that God won't hear us until we cry out to him, until we think about him. And then God will respond to us. But the reality is, it's God who reaches out to us first. It's God who comes and changes our heart, gives us a new heart, gives us a new spirit, uh, changes our thought process, changes our desires, and places within us the desire to pray to him, to cry out to him, to recognize him as our father, as our Lord, as our Savior, and to begin to seek him. And then we find him. Yes, there's cause and effect in this life, and there's cause and effect taught in this world. We seek him, and when we seek him, as it says right here, we will find him. But the reason we seek him is because of the change that he made in our life. Because of his thoughts that he has towards us. He's a very caring God. He's a, he's a thoughtful God. He thinks about us. He looks after us. He cares for us. He is bringing us to an expected end. And it's a process. Philippians 1 and 6. Paul writing Philippians says, I'm confident of this. That he who hath begun a good work in you will continue it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He's doing a work in us. It's, it's a process. He's working with us constantly, all the time, bringing us along. Uh, sometimes we go through trials and tribulations as part of that process. And it's not fun. It's not pleasant. But it's for our good. It's a purifying process. It's a growing process. It's a maturing process. It's a drawing closer to God process. And we're better off for it. Uh, in the 12th chapter where it, it uh, talks about God chastising those that he loves. Uh, and says that if he doesn't chastise us, it's because he doesn't claim us as his. You know, it's not our place to go around 
uh, trying to train up everybody else's child. Our place to look after our children and train them up. Uh, but he says if he is chastising you, that, that's a sure sign that he loves you. Because he's looking out after you and he's bringing you up. But it goes on to say that uh, now no chastisement for the present is pleasant. But it's grievous. It, it's unpleasant. It wouldn't have any benefit if it were pleasant. It's unpleasant. When parents correct their children, it's unpleasant for the child. When my parents corrected me, it was unpleasant. I never, ever wanted to be corrected. That was never any fun. It was never pleasant. But it goes on to say, but afterwards. It's not the moment. It's what comes from the moment. But afterward, it yielded the peaceable fruits of righteousness. In fact, right before that, he even talks about he does this that we might be able to partake of his holiness. Uh, it brings about a great goodness in us that we need. And so even just naturally speaking, as I look back now on growing up under the care and the training and love of my parents, uh, even though all those times that, uh, that I got corrected and chastised were not pleasant, I'm very thankful for them because I realize they did me good, that I'm better off now because they cared enough to do those things, to discourage me from things that I needed to be discouraged from. Now, if that's true just in this natural life, how much more true is that in the spiritual life, in the, in the big scheme of things? And so God cares enough for us uh, even to chastise us. And in uh, 1 Peter 5 and 7, it says to us, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Just a very straightforward statement. He cares. He is a caring God. God cares for us. And I'd like to look at maybe one specific way that God shows his care for us. And it's connected to what follows here. We never want to just take a scripture out of context. And so let's look at what Paul goes on to say here under the influence of the Holy Spirit. After he says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And then he gives this admonition. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. We've got an adversary. We've got an extremely formidable adversary. And his goal is to destroy. He wants to create as much havoc, as much unhappiness in the life of people, and especially in the life of God's children, because he doesn't really have to create havoc and unhappiness in people who aren't trying to follow the Lord. They're doing that for themselves. Uh, so he especially would like to create unhappiness and havoc in the life of God's children, in God's churches. Uh, he's, he's as a roaring lion, constantly seeking for an opportunity to attack, to tear, to rip, to destroy. And he's a tremendous adversary. He is not to be taken lightly. Now, he's not to be, uh, we ought not be afraid of him if we follow God's wisdom. But we should never underestimate him. Because left to ourselves, we don't even begin to be a match for Satan. He will steamroll us easily. Uh, you think about... Uh, Lions 
out on the Serengeti Plains of Africa. And you've got all those herds of animals out there. And they're looking towards them for something to rip and tear and destroy and eat. And so they go about hanging around the edges, roaring, trying to create fear of them, trying to get one of them to become confused, to bolt, to leave the herd. They don't do too much just running into the herd and attacking the herd uh, because the herd can protect each other. They try to find a straggler, someone who's drifted away, someone who's gotten weak. And so that's kind of the way I think of as Satan. He's looking for us to drift away, to get weak, to become uh, unprotected and exposed where he can then attack us. So God has shown a great carefulness for us and that one, he's warned us of this and that two, he tells us how to protect ourselves from it. In the fourth chapter of the book of James, the first thing he tells us in the big picture, the kind of fundamental thought is that we need to stick close to God. You know, I said a minute ago that we're no match for Satan, but we also don't need to fear him if we're following God's wisdom. In other words, if we're walking closely with God, we don't have to worry Satan because Satan is no match for God. And if we're close to God, Satan will stay away from us. Uh, it, my mind always goes to the idea of a, a, a young boy walking through a neighborhood where a bully lives. And he has to walk that way each morning to go to school. And the bully comes out each day and shoves him around and rips his clothes and knocks his books out of his hand and makes him give him his lunch money. As long as that little boy keeps going through that neighborhood that way, that bully's going to keep doing it because that bully's a lot bigger and stronger than that little boy is, and he knows he can do that. But then Big Brother finds out what's going on, and so Big Brother says, I'll walk you to school. And when brother, Big Brother walks him to school, he's a lot bigger and more powerful than the bully is, and the bully never comes out from behind the bush because he knows he can't handle the Big Brother. As long as we're walking with our big brother, we're safe from Satan. We don't want to take Satan on by ourselves. We're going to get knocked down, our books knocked out of our hand, our ripped shirt ripped, and our lunch money taken from us. But as long as we're walking with our big brother, Satan will stay away because he's no match for him. So the first thing is, is we stay close to God. He says, submit yourselves in the seventh verse of the fourth chapter of James. Submit yourself. Therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So rule number one in protecting ourselves from this great adversary is make sure we don't drift away. Make sure we're walking close with the Lord. Make sure we're staying in the herd because then we're not exposed. Then we're protected. But point number two, the way that he kind of specifically gives us to go, how to go about that, how to take the things of God, how to walk more closely with God and apply the things of God to ourselves, we find in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. And you probably all know what's in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Probably well familiar with that. I'll bet even you young children know what's talked about in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. 
this thing called the armor of the Lord. If we want to hold Satan at bay, we need to put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6 verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, this is Paul's final admonition as he's writing to the Philippians. He's wrapping them up. He says, this is the last thought I want to leave you with. He's given us an amazing tool in the big scheme of things for, for resisting Satan, for walking close to him. That's really more important than resisting Satan. Resisting Satan will just come if we're walking close to him, right? In his word that he's given to us. Even in this, this one single book of the Bible, this epistle to the Philippians, it's an amazing book. It's filled with so much wonderful information from God. It's one of the smaller books of the Bible. It starts out a very, what we call, theological book. The first three chapters really lay out some very solid, very sound theology that not only tells us what Christ has done for us, but helps us understand God better and helps inspire us to walk more closely with him. Tells us how that uh, from before the foundation of the world, he loved his children and he chose them to save them, to keep them from being torn apart by Satan, to keep us from being torn about by our own selves. You know, one of the biggest problems we have is Satan doesn't really need a whole lot of help. We're our own worst enemy. He's given to us, blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according as he had chosen us in him to an expected end. To give us an expected end, he said in Jeremiah, right? What's that expected end? That we might stand before him, holy and without blame, in love. We have that separation taken away. We have that death removed so that we're brought back together with him. Atonement is the term for that. If you want to use the theoretical, theological term. And uh, even though it seems too easy and too simple, that word is just what it means. It's a contraction of the two words at one. And that's what it means. It means to bring it one, to bring back together. Christ brought us back together with God by removing our sins that had separated us from our God. Isaiah 59, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Christ brought us back together with him. And through those first three verses, it just spells out very, very wonderfully those strong theological principles, doctrinal principles of the grace of God. And then starting with chapter 4, he begins to get into what we refer to as practical things, how to apply those in our daily life, in living our life, uh, in being one with one another and in the Lord, uh, in how husbands and wives should care and think of one another and how parents should look after their children in our relationship with those that we serve or in our relationship with those that we uh, have rule over. But he comes down to the latter part of the sixth chapter and he says, finally, here's the last thought I want to leave you with. Think about this. Finally, my brethren, be strong. Not in our own strength, not in our own selves. That won't work. 
Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. A savvy soldier will not just grab part of his armor and leave part of it behind. He understands he needs to take time to fully suit up if he's going to go out and face the enemy. So we need to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, not of our neighbor, not of our brother or sister, not of the schoolyard bully, but against Satan. Because as he goes on to say, there is the real battle. There is the real battle. We had a lady come in and do a little session with some of our uh, boys on Friday. Uh, and it was, she didn't use the term conflict resolution, but that's basically what it was about was conflict resolution. She asked him, said, what is conflict? And some of them said, well, it's getting in a fight. You know, it's a struggle. And she said, well, it is a struggle, all right. So it's not getting that fight with somebody. It's not fisticuffs. It's a struggle in your mind. And she's right. There's where the conflict begins. It's in our mind. The fact that we let our mind go down a path that it doesn't need to go down. And that's where the conflict begins. If we, if we conquer that, we stop it there, then the rest will never happen. So we don't wrestle against the world around us, not really. We may evidence the conflict that's going on in our mind. We may evidence the conflict that's going on in our soul and our spirit by the way we interact with the world around us. But the conflict really is a spiritual conflict. That's where the real battle is. I don't know that we, I don't know that I fully appreciate the reality of our spiritual existence like we ought to and the reality of just spiritual existence in general. But we are spirit. We're not angels where we're only spirit. We are, have a body too. But we are spirit. But we probably relate more to our body. And so we probably don't think about our spiritual reality as much, but our God is spirit. And if we are going to worship him, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. I don't want to underplay the truth, but I do want to emphasize the fact that we have to worship him spiritually. So we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, and so then he comes back again. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand, withstand in the day of evil and having done all to stand. It's important that we stand. It's important that we make a stand. It may not be necessary that we make an advance, but it is important that we do not give ground, that we do not make a retreat. And the way we do that is by putting on the whole armor of God. Now, this is, a, you know, allegorical in nature. We don't actually go put something on our body. It's not what it's talking about. But he begins to talk then about the armor of God. He says, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. Having your midsection wrapped up with truth. We need truth. We've got to have more than truth, as we're going to see. Uh, you can latch on to truth. Uh, they, I've, I've known of people 
who knew the Bible forward, backwards, upside down. And they had a proper idea of what the Bible was teaching. And there was no spirituality in them at all. They were spiritually cold and dead as the proverbial nail. So we need more than truth, but also we have to have truth because he did say worship him in spirit and in truth. We have to really know who God is. We have to really know what God wants and what he understands. Uh, and, and so we need truth. Our midsection is our balance point. We need to be balanced in truth. We have truth. That's what will keep us from getting tipped over. Uh, you know, I figured out playing basketball. I didn't want to look at a, if I was guarding a player, I didn't want to look at his head or his hands or his feet. I looked at his midsection. Because he wasn't going anywhere that his midsection didn't go. If he did, he was going to fall down. Our midsection is our balance point. We need to be balanced in God's truth. We need to be wrapped up in God's truth. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. And our breast is our heart and our lungs. The powerhouse of life in us. It needs to be protected. What does it need to be protected with? It needs to be protected with the righteousness of Christ. Our, the core of our being needs to be surrounded by righteousness. Our heart, as we like to say, we, we like to think of the heart as, as, as the, the middle of something, the life of something. So our life needs to be protected by righteousness. We need to understand who our Savior is. We need to understand that we lack righteousness and we need righteousness and where it comes from. We don't need to be going, trying to go about trying to establish our own righteousness. Many of the Jews tried that much to the regret of Paul because we can't do that. As Brother Chris pointed out earlier, our righteousnesses, plural, are as filthy rags. The best we have to offer in our finest, best moments, and understand we have to understand where the standard is. And it's not the standard that we establish. I, I can look around at somebody and in a, in a really shining moment and I can say, wow, they're really hitting the top of the standard state as I look at things as a human being. But that's not the standard. The standard is God's standard. The standard is God himself. And we can't obtain to that level of righteousness. It had to have been very, very confusing, I'm sure, to the apostles when Christ said to them, unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees. Because they thought the Pharisees had it nailed down. I mean, the Pharisees, man, they dotted every I and jotted every tittle of the law. There was nobody more careful about keeping the law than the Pharisees. They thought that they were the epitome of righteousness. And so when he said your righteousness has to exceed that, I'm sure that was a mind-blowing statement to them. But of course, if you really know anything about the Pharisees, you even know, you know that even the best of them were sinners. And that many of them were great sinners because they thought themselves to be something that they weren't. And they thought themselves to be the dictators of what righteousness was. And in the process of that, they went about changing God's law to suit themselves. 
So in truth, they weren't really very righteous, but the concept was that they were extremely righteous, and Christ said you have to go above that. The only way to go above that in terms of the concept that they had was to get Christ's righteousness. That's the righteousness we need. Our life, our vital existence needs to be covered in the righteousness of Christ. If we are, and Satan may cause us a lot of problems, he may worry us a lot, but he can't ever stop us from going where we're going. He won't ever turn us back. So we need to have on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod in the preparation of the gospel of peace. We need to be walking in the gospel of peace. We need to be walking in the way of Christ and the truth of Christ. We need to be peacemakers. We shouldn't be going out looking for a fight. We need to be ready to stand not give ground, but we shouldn't be looking to stir things up and go out and find a fight. Uh, we're told in Romans, as much as life within you as possible, live peaceably with all men. And the way that's worded, I do not think that's giving us an out that if, well, I just can't stand that guy, so I can't get along with him. I don't think that's what that's telling us at all. I think that's saying they may just absolutely refuse to live peaceably with you, and so you may just have to go your own separate way. But as long as they're willing to live peaceably with you, you live peaceably with them. Now, that doesn't mean you embrace things that they embrace that you think are wrong. That doesn't mean you agree with them on everything. That just means you're peaceable with them. You don't have to fight about everything all the time. You may just have to say at times, well, that's not the way I understand it. We'll just have to agree to disagree. But you don't have to become enemies and be at war with each other. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. People are called the children of God because of the children of their parents, because people can identify them with their parents. I'm sure probably everybody here somewhere along the line had somebody say to them, well, you really look like your mama, or you really look like your daddy. When we are peacemakers, we are starting to reflect God in our lives. And so we can be identified then as the children of God. So over and over again, the Bible tells us to be peacemakers. So we're not, we're not supposed to go out and try to find a fight. We need to make a stand. We need not give ground. But we need to do it as lovingly and as peaceably as the other people allow us to do it. And if they just won't have anything of it, the Bible says don't cast your pearl before swine. You just have to go another direction. And maybe the Lord will change their heart someday. Change my heart someday. Maybe he'll change their heart someday. But don't go, we don't go seeking a fight. We're not looking for a fight. We're looking for peace. And of course, the most important way that we are walking in peace is again that peace that Christ created between ourselves and God. That's the real path of peace that we can trod that, that really matters. We're no longer fighting against God. And we need to have a mindset of I'm not going to fight against God. I'm going to go with him. So our feet need to be shod in the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, or in other words, out in front of all, taking the shield of faith. Wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Always, always our faith needs to be out in front. 
we never need to have our shield behind us. Shield behind us won't do us a whole lot of good. Our faith needs to be out there. We always need to be able to give an answer for the faith, for the hope, the faith that was within us. Uh, I'm not saying you need to be shoving your beliefs in somebody's faith, but there shouldn't ever be any doubt on the other people's mind that you're a person of faith. Your faith ought to be out there in front of it. And, and again, you don't have to grab people by the collar and start preaching to them. It's the way you live. It's the way you interact with people, the way you treat people. I remember I had a job one time, and, uh, and they were getting ready to call people to work in on Sunday. And I was not one to work on Sunday, because that day I went and worshipped. And I'm sitting there, I knew what was going around, the manager was going around talking to each person, I knew it was coming, I said, well, how am I going to handle this, you know, I, I guess I'll just tell them, you know, if you want me to quit, I'll quit, uh, but, but i got to be at church tomorrow. The manager came up to me and said, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, well, I try to be. And you always go to church on Sunday, don't you? Yeah. Okay, we'll see you on Monday. That was all that was said. And I'm sure I'm not the greatest shining example of someone who lets their light shine. But the Lord is just good that way. And we need to show him in our lives. So our faith needs to be out in front of everything. The faith is what will block everything. The faith is what will block Satan's attacks. Those fiery darts that can be so burning and so harmful. But our faith will stop them. Cold in their tracks. And take the helmet of salvation. Our mind needs to be upon God. Our mind needs to be thinking upon the complete work of Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2 said to the Corinthians, I am determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I want my mind to be, as I interact with you, on the finished work of Christ. We need to always be remembering what Christ has done for us. When those moments come where, where we want to get drugged down, where Satan's whispering in our ear, trying to cause us to start having doubts, trying to get our, our attention off, on something that doesn't need to be on so that we begin to become weak and, and, and frustrated. We need to keep our mind on Christ. Ever looking unto Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 2 and 2 tells us. We need to stay focused on Christ. You take Peter walking on the water. Here came Christ walking along the water. The apostles all got scared because they thought they were seeing a ghost because they knew who it looked like. And Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, bid me come. I thought that was pretty wise of Peter. He didn't just say, Lord, I'm coming to you. But he said, if it's really you, tell me to come. And then I'll come. And Christ said, come on. And so Peter started walking on water. It's storming out there. Wind blowing. The waves are kicking up everywhere. Peter's walking on water. People like to say there's only one man ever walked on water. Actually, there were two people that walked on water. But they only came from one source of power. But then Peter quit looking at Christ and he started looking around at the waves and the winds. And once he lost his focus on Christ, what happened? He wasn't walking on water anymore. He started sinking. Fortunately, Peter, mind didn't stray very long and he got back on Christ. He cried out, Lord, save me, I perish. And the Lord reached out and saved him. And then they walked onto the boat and got in the boat. Tremendous lesson in that for us. Keep our eyes on Christ. Keep our mind on Christ. It'll help us get through all kinds of things. 
Wish I did a better job of it. I would get rid of a lot of problems in my life if I did. So the helmet of salvation, our mind needs to be upon the work of Christ and what he has done for us. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This one, he really spells out what he means. The word of God. The word of God is our sword. You know, so all of these things have been defensive weapons primarily. They, they would take a shield and push with it. But basically, these are all defensive weapons to protect from the enemy. We've got one offensive weapon to drive the enemy back. And that is the sword of the Lord or the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. Just like Christ did when Satan came to him and tempted him every time. You're hungry. Turn those stones into bread and take care of your fleshly lust for hunger. It is written, Thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus didn't start reading him the riot act. He didn't start calling him names, belittling him or anything like that. He just said, wait, what did God say? Oh, God said bread's not that important. But his word is really important. Bow down to me and I'll give you all the great nations of the world. Somehow Satan was able to show him that in a moment of time. It had to be an amazing sight to see all the tremendous empires that existed in this world at one time and then be told, you can have it all. You just bow down to me one time. What a thought process Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have had. Here they knew they were facing a fiery furnace. Everybody else was kneeling down. They were in the crowd. Nobody really paying attention to them. They just took a knee real quick and hopped up. And they knew they didn't care anything about that idol. But God would have known. And they would have known. Their hearts would have known. They would have known that wasn't right to give that kind of reverence to that idol. And so they didn't take the knee. They said, God will take care of us one way or another. He'll either protect us from the fire or we'll burn up in the fire and we'll go and be with him. But either way, Nebuchadnezzar, your power over us will be ended. Jesus said, it is written, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou worship. Till go on a pinnacle. If you're really who you say you are, cast yourself down. For he says, the angels will sweep in and hold you up. He actually misquoted that a little bit. He says, if you're walking along and you stumble, it's from the 91st Psalm that they'll be there. He doesn't say if you do something foolish like jump off a pinnacle. He also stopped quoting right there because what I assume he stopped quoting there because what came next was talking about trading the andro to foot and defeating the lion, both of which are representative of Satan. But again, Christ went to the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. The word of God is our sword. The word of God is what we can use offensively to drive Satan away. So we need to be in God's word. We need to be uh, like Timothy, Peter told, uh, Paul told Timothy, a workman who's skillful in his craft with God's word. That's the way he told Timothy to study God's word, like a workman that was skillful in his craft and with his tools. So we need to do that. And then finally he says, tells him one other thing. You, you armor up, you put on the whole armor of God, and then he says, praying always with all prayer 
and supplication. In the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So after we put on the armor, then we need to be in communication with the captain of our salvation. A soldier who gets out of communication with his leadership is in a bad way. We've got to stay in communication. We've got to be praying. We've got to be talking to God. We've got to be talking to the captain of our salvation. Which way are we going? And look what the prayer is about. Watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We need to be praying for each other. I got the sense that that's the spirit of this church this morning. To pray for each other. We need to be looking out for each other. You notice something missing in this armor? Maybe you've thought about this. Maybe you hadn't. And I don't say that to mean that the armor is incomplete. If the armor is perfect. What's not there doesn't need to be there. But there's something that's not there in this armor. There's a shield out in front. There's a helmet on the head. There's a girdle around the midsection. There's a breastplate on the front. There's nothing on the back. There's no armor for the back. Number one, you never turn your back on the enemy. A wise soldier never turns his back on the enemy. If you've got to retreat, you do it facing the enemy so you can retreat orderly and they can't overrun you. If the soldiers of an army ever turn, then that army's broken and the enemy's going to overrun them and they're going to mow them down. You've got to keep the enemy in front of you always. We've got to know where Satan is. You know, the old Satan, the saying is, keep your, friends closer, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. We've got to keep Satan in front of us. But the other part of this is, we are each other's back protection. We've got to be watching each other's back. We need to be praying for each other. We need to be encouraging one another. Helping one another stay strong. Helping one another to make sure they're facing the enemy. Helping one another make sure they're staying in connection with the captain of our salvation. Helping one another make sure that we're not letting some part of the armor slip. That we've, we got the truth and the faith and the, the, the uh, breastplate of righteousness, but we forgot to put the helmet of salvation on. We forgot to be thinking about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or whatever. That we are completely armored up. And to be fully, completely armored up, we need some back protection. An army always has a rear guard to protect its backside. You don't want to get surprised from the backside. So an army always has a rear guard. We are each other's rear guard. That's the rest of the army. I said there wasn't any back. There is a back, but it's ourselves. We have to be each other's rear protection. So we want to put on the whole armor of God. We want to stand in his strength and in the power of his might. We want to have all those things that it just talked about to us. And we want to be constantly in contact with our captain, praying for one another, looking out for one another's back, making sure that we're each protected and we're safe because we are our rear protection. You are everybody else's rear protection. Everybody else in here depends on you to protect their back. So we guys, remember those things. And we also have to remember we can't do it in our own power. We've got to stay close to the Lord. We've got to walk with Him.